Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. My name is Mike Staggs. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at Clear Light, a group from Los Angeles whose 1967 album on Elektra Records is an unheralded classic of West Coast psychedelic music. If you're a fan of that kind of music, then right away, the album cover pulls you in. Six long hairs ensconced in some leafy L.A. locale, all buckskin, suede, beads, beards, and with a look of stoned but sussed detachment that told you these guys were the genuine article, real-life freaks, not some plastic flower people from a Hollywood casting couch. William Harvey's design mirrored recent Electra releases by Love and The Doors, and on first impression, so does the music. A schizophrenic parade of surrealistic folk rock, fuzz-laden freakouts, and dramatic performance pieces. Yet here was a totally different and at times equally compelling trip, one that reveals more delights with each listen. For decades, very little was known about Clear Light, although the album's cult popularity continued to grow. UK-based writer Gray Newell took it upon himself to track down the band members and uncover the full, definitive story of the band. That story can be read in issue number 58 of Ugly Things. And here in this episode, I'll talk to Gray about Clear Light's music, their story, the different band members, and how he came to write this amazing story. So, Gray, this story has been a long time in the making. When did you first hear Clearlight, and what was it that attracted you to their music? What what makes them special? Well, it, it, I first heard them in the early 80s. Um, I'd long been a fan of Love and the Doors, so when I first chanced upon uh, Clearlight, uh, the album, uh, and saw they were on the same label as those two groups and shared the same producer and also included a member who had played bass on some of the Doors' albums, that was all the recommendation I really needed. On top of that, the uh, the picture of the group on the the, the record cover showed uh, some of the freakiest looking freaks uh, I'd ever seen on a record sleeve. So um, yeah, I dived in, and uh, you know I wasn't disappointed. I mean, Clear Light ticked all the right boxes musically for me. Uh, you know, they're in the same musical universe as Love and the Doors, but they also brought something uniquely of their own to the mix. Um, and the early 80s were a you know, pretty bleak time in the UK, really. Um, but Clearlight helped bring some of that kind of faraway, you know, Californian sunshine that helped brighten things up. Um, it was a long time ago, but yeah, I've stuck with them. Yeah, yeah. I think it was similar for me, really. Once you see that album cover and it has the logo and the, look, the way the band looks and the fact that it's on Elektra Records, one of the coolest labels ever, you know, you, right away you want to hear the record. And like you said, it, I was the same. It, it didn't disappoint. It's it's a really strange record to get into at first, I, I think, because it's quite out there, but it really sticks with you. And um, yeah, that's why I think so many people love it. So when did you start working on telling their story? I mean, you talked to pretty much everyone from the band and, and people even that weren't in the band but were associated with the band. So how did you go about tracking them down and how did they feel about sharing their memories with you? Well, well, in the early days, it was pretty uh, hard to find out any, you know, much in the way of kind of biographical detail. 
Um, the the band had basically been relegated to a, an obscure footnote of rock history, really. I mean, they were lucky to get a passing mention at all, you know, in, in um, books and magazines. And and if they they did get mentioned, it was only due to their link to the Doors, really. But um, I mean, it, it was when Ed Cell reissued the album in the late '80s. Um, they had liner notes by Brian Hogg, the legendary Brian Hogg, uh, you know. Um, but as as much as those notes kind of filled in some of the gaps, it, you know, they they left a, a lot more kind of questions unanswered for me. So, um, and in fact, um, kind of coincidentally, the the very first piece of writing I ever had published was a kind of track by track review of that Ed Cell reissue that I wrote for a UK um, fanzine called Holding Together, which would have been about 1987. But uh, later on, with the you know with the advent of the internet, one of the very first things I ever did was search online for, for more information about Clear Light. But there was hardly anything on there that I didn't already know. So I um, basically I created a kind of modest one-page website, just giving a brief overview of the band and, and you know what I knew about them. And then um, a few months later, you know, imagine my surprise when I got an email from Doug Luban. I mean, um, you know, Doug was a legend to me, you know, not only because he'd been in Clear Light, but also because he played bass for the Doors. Um, and, you know, I, I, was, I was over the moon. It was, you know, such a surprise. I mean, and those guys, I mean, from the viewpoint of the late 80s, early 90s, those guys, it just seemed so far away in time and space, you know, it was as if they were beaming in from another planet, really. Yes. You know, but Doug was very supportive and very keen to help uh, and fill in some of the, the, the gaps. But unfortunately, he was kind of um, the epitome of that old adage that if you remembered the 60s, you weren't really there. And, you know, his, his recollections were pretty sparse on detail. But I did interview him at length. And then after that, I managed to track down Dallas Taylor. I mean, hooray for the internet. I mean, it just made the world a much smaller place. And, you know, these people became much more accessible. Right. And Dallas was was very helpful in sharing his memories of Clear Light. I mean, uh, I think it made a bit of a refreshing change for him to be asked about Clear Light rather than, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and, you know, all those other bands that he was kind of involved with afterwards. Yes, right. But... um you know, this is it. So I think it was a bit of a breath of fresh air for for Dallas. I mean, he, despite, you know, he, he has had a, a very well-documented kind of um, battle with substance abuse uh, all, all through his career, but his memory was surprisingly sharp uh, uh, still, you know, and he managed to, um, you know, help me out quite a lot with um, some of the more obscure details of the band, you know, of how, how he became involved with them and everything. Right. I think... The next person I spoke to was Lee Housekeeper, who was the band's road manager. And I managed to connect with him when he was actually visiting some friends in London. So, um, yeah, I went up and met him. We had a very long and detailed uh, and a very amusing conversation about um, his time trekking around the US with the band, getting them from gig to gig, etc. And then Lee, uh, in turn, put me in touch with Bob Seal, who he'd stayed in, in contact with all those years. And Bob, again, had an amazing memory and um, basically shared a lot of insights into his treatment uh, in the band and how um, Paul Rothschild had kind of um, had a kind of a Svengali type uh, effect on, on the band and their history and their, their you know, shaping where the direction that they went into. So slowly, you know, I was fitting all the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah, I mean, it always helps if you talk to more than one member of the band because, you know, they remember different things 
or sometimes they remember the same things in a totally different way. So you're able to fill gaps and clarify things or refute things, yeah. and that's really how you get to tell the story properly, which is what I think you did. It's always great to get different viewpoints. Like you say, you're always going to get um, you know uh, different variations on the same story from you know whoever you're speaking to. So, uh, I mean, it was great. And I, slowly I was able to start fitting all the pieces of the puzzle, you know, of Clear Light together. And then, uh, you know, after that, I managed to connect with Michael Nay, you know, Clifty Young and, and uh, finally um, and Ralph Shuckett as well. And, you know, they all provided a wealth of kind of in-depth insight and observation on how they all came together and uh, how it all finally came to an end right you know this is it and then doug um kind of encouraged me to expand the website uh, and it, it became quite a, a rambling kind of I mean, a behemoth of a, a website really there was so much stuff on there i had all the kind of transcripts of all the interviews i'd done with the bands uh a kind of uh, expanded history of the the band uh, it, discography all the photos posters reviews kind of newspaper clippings anything i could dig dig up connected to the band really right and then eventually you, you wove it all together beautifully for this story uh, in the new issue so you know, let's go back to the beginning the band started out in los angeles in 1966 can you sort of set the scene i mean la was really a crucible for youth culture and rock and roll at that time wasn't it oh yeah oh yeah yeah i mean things were really changing at the time um los angeles had become a bit of a melting pot really with kind of a lot of seemingly, you know, kind of disparate musical styles coming together to form a new sound. Um, you know, it was a blend of kind of folk rock, which was, you know, the flavor of the day at the time. And, you know, Southern Californian surf music, British invasion influences uh, and more, you know, and, and this was all taken to kind of uh, new kind of hallucinatory extremes, really, thanks to the prevalence of LSD use, which was, of course, still legal in California at that time. Uh, and basically, they created what was to become the new psychedelic sound. I mean, hundreds of garage bands were springing up around this uh, new kind of phenomena, and a big teen scene flourished around the clubs that had sprung up along the Sunset Strip, you know, places like the London Fog, the Sea Witch, uh, Whiskey A Go-Go, and, and, you know, of course, Pandora's Box. And you had groups like the Birds, Love, the Seeds, and of course the Doors, and these were all pivotal to um, this new kind of musical movement. Uh, and they sounded a clarion call for others to follow in their wake. And so it was a fertile environment for these new groups to grow and allowed, you know, the early incarnations of what were to become uh, clear light to flourish, really. I mean, the band started off initially as the Garnerfield Sanitarium, um, a name they picked up from a, a road sign they, when they were driving around in, uh, you know, the sticks one day, uh, and they liked the sound of it, and so they, they adopted that as their name. But, uh, yeah, at this point, you know, um, it was early days. There were only a four-piece at the time, uh, and it was a bit of an unconventional lineup because, of course, it featured uh, Bob Seal on guitar, uh, and then Robbie Robertson on uh, kind of a rhythm guitar, along with uh, Michael Nay and Dallas Taylor, who were both drummers. So they had two drummers and two guitarists. Um, and at the time, they were living around um, near Manhattan Beach. And so we're playing some of the little clubs around there. Uh, and they all lived in a, a little one-bedroom cottage, uh, along with Robbie's wife, who was um, Barbara Robertson, 
who was uh, the singer from the the Ashes, who would later become the Peanut Butter Conspiracy. But right. at the time, she was she was taking a break from those bands because she was quite heavily pregnant. So they were all crammed into this little, uh, you know, like two room, cot- as I say, cottage. It was, you know, like two room uh, little place, and uh, yeah, it was a bit cramped. But uh, yeah, they they realised that they kind of needed a bassist, so they began searching around for a new member. And at the time, um, Cantor's Deli was known as a kind of place where musicians hung out. And it was easy to find, you know, where other musicians would be. And so Bob and Dallas went along there and they had little notes um, pinned to their shirts with the message, uh, you know, we need a bass player. And as luck would have it, a guy called Doug Luban just happened to be there that night looking for a band to play with, saw the notes, went up and introduced himself. And pretty soon he found he was being driven back to Manhattan Beach to meet the rest of the guys. And uh, the next thing he was moving in. Um, so, uh, yeah, they, were, <laughs> they ended up in this, uh, you know, increasingly cramped cottage right. with the rest of the group. And then Bar- Barbara moved out because <laughs> it was getting too crowded. Uh, and she went off to stay at the Ashes uh, house in, in Silver Lake, where there was a bit more space for her and the, the baby that she was about to have. Um and actually, she and Robbie split up um, soon after that. It had just become too much for her to cope with at the uh, the Manhattan Beach cottage. But with Doug in the band, they kind of underwent a change of identity and became uh, the Brain Train, which was a name suggested to them by uh, the bass player from the Ashes, uh, Alan Brackett. around this time they also acquired uh, a manager in the shape of a guy called Bud Mathis. Bud had been the manager of an apartment building that Doug had been living in and uh, he'd been mentoring Doug. He bought him a bass guitar to practice on and kind of really encouraged Doug to uh, you know pursue his dream. Um, and B- Bud was a fascinating character, a really nice guy. I mean he'd been a professional boxer in the 40s and 50s and uh, he was fighting under the name uh, Babyface Mathis. Um, he was well known for kind of uh, KOs, you know. He, he had quite. A, he was only a little guy, but he was, um, you know, he's quite handy with his fists. And um, he was actually um, a lightweight champion of Arizona in the in the early fifties. But um, he gave all that up. Um, he didn't. He came to the realization that he didn't like violence and he didn't like being violent and fighting. And, you know, he started feeling sorry for his opponents. So um, basically gave it up and relocated to Los Angeles and decided he thought it'd be a, you know, a nice uh, career change to um, enter the the, the music biz, uh, trying his hand as a a songwriter. He seemed to think that was a good, uh, a good way of uh, making money. You know, and he had some uh, some early success as well as a songwriter. And uh, one of the first things he uh, he wrote was um, a Beatles cash-in called uh, Yes, You Can Hold My Hand, <laughs> which was recorded by the Teen Bugs, a band called the Teen Bugs, around 64. I met him a couple of times. I mean, he was a real a real character, you know. And, and uh, I mean, he must have been in his uh, 70s or 80s by that point when I met him in the, in the 90s. But... Um, he had amazing stories to tell, you know, from being a boxer, you know, to being sort of following, 
you know, Eastern religion and, and meditation and all that kind of stuff. You know, he was an extraordinary guy. He was heavily into um, Sant Matt, which is like an Indian uh, kind of philosophy. Uh, yeah, no, he he was he was very much into that, and uh, he also got a couple of the other, you know, some of the guys out of the association and uh, the joint effort. You know, he'd draw as many people into that as he could, as he thought it was, uh, you know, um, a good thing for people to be uh, involved in. Um, I don't know if you've ever read his uh, autobiography, which is absolutely fascinating. It's called Confessions of a Robot. Oh yeah, it, it takes you from his, uh, you know, early years, uh, you know, growing up in Louisiana through being a kind of hobo and, uh, you know, riding the trains and stuff like that, you know, through his boxing career and, and beyond. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's a fantastic book. Yeah, it was amazing. He's one of those guys that kind of came up through the Depression and World War II and everything and, yeah. and then kind of washed up in Los Angeles in the 60s and kind of was at the center of all this sort of flower power and early hippie stuff, which was just what an extraordinary life. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And of course, he was married uh, a number of occasions. And um, he proudly told me once that, uh, you know, each and every one of his wives was a teenager when he married her. So <laughs> he had a bit of a reputation, I think. Um, yeah, I think he got into a, a few scrapes uh, in his kind of post Clearlight career when he was managing clubs up in um, Santa Barbara. And of course, you know, there's this old guy. He must have been in his, oh, he must have been in his forties, late forties. But you know, he was hanging out with all these teenage girls and stuff. I mean, yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, free love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, indeed. Yeah, oh, he, you know, immersed himself in that scene for sure. So, um, <laughs> I mean, one of the things I love about this story is all of the characters, people like Bud. I mean, they were such an unusual assortment of people around Clearlight. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about Robbie Robertson. I mean, you mentioned him before, but before, you know, the Garnerfield Sanitarium and the Brain Train, he was, you know, he had a nightclub act, right? A Robbie the Werewolf. Can you talk about that? Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, he truly was a larger-than-life character. I mean, um he was kind of a, a hangover from the beatnik era, really. Um, he was a lot older, well, you know, uh, a fair bit older than the, the rest of the guys in the band. I mean, um, he'd served in, in Vietnam in the late 50s. He was an airman, um, but he got invalided out of the service uh, after he had a motorcycle accident. Um, and he, it left him with a really badly injured leg. He also had a kind of um, blood sugar uh, deficiency you know he's like hyperglycemia or something like that which kind of made him a bit of an erratic character at times you know quite a lot of mood swings due to you know uh this hyperglycemia but uh after he left the 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 forces uh he actually ended up in san diego which is where he started this kind of um robbie the werewolf uh thing you know the rocking werewolf and and you know he'd kind of write these weird manic parodies of old kind of folk standards but taking a kind of inspiration from the old universal you know monster movies so you know for instance you know uh, greenback dollar became uh, a song called vampire man and uh tiptoe through the tulips became tiptoe through the wolfbane you know you get the idea <laughs> but uh, you know he built up quite a reputation on the folk circuit because he <laughs> From what I understand, his live act was apparently, you know, really quite something to behold. You know, he had a shock of like long red hair, a big red beard, and uh, you know, he was a pretty much, you know, he's quite a scary looking character. I mean, a a Alan Brackett, you know, who was, uh, you know, on the folk scene at the same time as Robbie, there, you know, he he remembered people, you know, falling backwards out of their chairs 
um, because, um, you know, Robbie was right in their faces, you know, dripping with sweat and, you know. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it must have been something to see, really. And also, it's quite risque, a lot of his kind of material, you know, the between-song banter for, you know, the early 60s. Some of it was quite near the knuckle. Yeah, because he put out an album, didn't he, Robbie the Werewolf? That's right. Yeah, he did. I mean, that was uh, recorded in 1964 at a club in Santa Monica called The Whaleback. Um, But, yeah, I mean, we were so lucky that was, uh, you know, captured for posterity because uh, it's a fascinating insight into, you know, that that scene, which we would have lost completely. I mean, if it wasn't really for Jello Biafra kind of championing the the, the album in, uh, you know, one of those incredibly strange um, music volumes that, that research put out years and years ago, it probably would have just languished in obscurity, you know, uh, until guys like us picked up on it, really. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I worked on, I mean, it was out of print for years. And, of course, um, original copies were really, really expensive. But fortunately, you know, a few years ago, we managed to get it reissued uh, on CD and on LP. And, you know, I, I, uh, I penned the liner notes for those with um, with Alan Brackett. So, well worth picking up if you right. can find a copy. So which label was that on? Oh, the reissues were on, um, uh, the CD was on Gear Fab, and the album, the vinyl pressing, was on the uh, one of the Gerson labels. I think it's the Far Out label, yeah. something like that. Or Outsider or something like that. It's one of those. It's, it's part of the Gerson group of labels anyway right. out of Spain. Yeah, I mean, the original album, I'm sure they just... It was just a private press and probably pressed up a couple hundred copies to sell at his shows and it never really got in yeah. record stores or anything like that. I've never seen an original copy. No, they're, they're uh, you know, they're, um, yeah, like hen's teeth, really. Uh, they're that rare. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you will pay, you know, a good few hundred dollars for an original copy of that nowadays. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, Robbie, and he kind of continued on the, the folk circuit, and uh, which is where he met his wife, you know, Barbara. Uh, they they, they, uh, they had a double act for a while before she kind of teamed up with Alan Brackett and, and John Merrill in what would become, you know, the Ashes peanut butter conspiracy further along the line. Right. I mean, he was an enthusiastic guitarist, shall we say. Um, but he wasn't that proficient. But uh, apparently, yeah, he he had a, like a twelve-string guitar that he would, you know, was slightly out of tune, and he'd just bash away at it. So, but uh, but he he was just an amazing-looking guy. I mean, this is one of the things about um, the Clear Light album sleeve is, you know, his presence on the album sleeve. Even though at the time uh, the album was released, he was no longer in the band. But you know, his image was uh, integral to the, the kind of the, the band's look at the time. And he's credited on the uh, on the back cover as Guru, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he he remained part of the kind of um, the inner circle of of the band, you know, uh, more kind of uh, in the background. You know, he looked after the, the the their house and you know all this kind of stuff and their gear and stuff. For a little while, he had uh, a guitar that he invented that was also sort of a light show, like the light guitar. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, no, this was something, you know, this is, he tried to stay relevant with the group, you see, and uh, so he kind of invented this kind of role for himself, playing this this invention that he'd come up with, which was basically, a, it was a, a modified guitar that um, wait, wait, when you um, hit the strings, when they uh, connected with the fret, it would complete a circuit, and 
these would set off lights in a, in a converted uh, speaker cabinet he had. So, yeah, as you played the, around on the, the fretboard, so these various coloured lights would flash on and off. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting concept. But, of course, uh, in those days, light shows, you know, state-of-the-art light shows um, just drowned out anything like that on stage. So it, I think the first time they used it on stage, um, it, you know, it just got lost. And so, you know, he... That was the end of that. So, <laughs> so let's go. Let's go to January 1967, and that's when the Brain Train signed to Electra Records, and that was really a turning point, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, it really was. I mean, Bud Mathis basically, um, once he became, uh, you know, aware of the group, um, he offered to become their manager, and he financed um, a recording session for the guys at the Electrovox Studios, where they kind of laid down a couple of tracks, uh, demo tracks. At that point, they also had a female vocalist involved with the band, uh, a woman by the name of Wanda Watkins, who was she was actually Robbie's girlfriend at the time <laughs> you know she was actually friends with um Barbara and Robbie and was kind of a part of the peanut butter conspiracy ashes kind of circle but she ended up uh, with Robbie I mean uh, and they were in that little cottage at Manhattan Beach uh, you know her and Robbie had one room the bedroom um and uh, the rest of the guys were all crammed into this other little room so uh yeah anyway um Bud took these recordings and decided he'd, he'd kind of punt them around to the various labels in the area. And the very first place he came to was the Electra um, offices. And so he just walked in unannounced, had no appointment or anything, just happened to walk in. And the, the uh, you know, the receptionist or secretary was on a lunch break. And just by chance, the first person he kind of bumped into was uh, the Electra A&R man, Billy James. And Bud gave him his spiel and, um, you know, played the tracks to Billy. Uh, and Billy was impressed and said, yeah, you know, this this sounds great. We'll try and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll run it by Jack Holtzman, uh, who's the electro head honcho over in kind of New York. And, yeah, got positive feedback from Jack and the band uh, got signed. Um, it's as easy as that, you know. It's, it's, I think uh, Bud was a bit shocked at how easy it turned out to be. Yeah, so they ended up on Electra. One of the first things they did when they had the contract was to ask for Electra to find them a house to live in because they were tired of living in this little shack down on the beach and they wanted to be a bit more you know, closer to, you know, to central LA. So Billy James um, um, and Paul Rothschild, uh, the producer, uh, who would soon become their manager, went around and, and found this house on Franklin Avenue which is a big old rambling kind of decrepit rundown mansion that had previously um, been the home of W.C. Fields, a comedian. Uh, and, the, yeah, they moved in there. Um, so, yeah, they, they you know, uh, and that was just the beginning of the story. And that's where the uh, cover pictures for the album were taken, right? In the, yeah. In the uh, garden of that house, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, you get an idea of the size uh, of that place, you know, really, because the gardens are just, I mean, they look like they're in the jungle somewhere. It's just all overgrown, all this exotic kind of uh foliage and uh you know all these yeah it, it, it looks fantastic yeah that's part of the appeal of the album certainly it's just the that world that they representing there you know it's very exotic yeah oh for sure for sure it's, it's i mean you think that's in that's it looks so pastoral but it's in you know in the middle of la <laughs> it's amazing so after signing to Electra, though one of the first things that happened was 
but got frozen out. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, they were persuaded that really they needed someone with a bit more experience to manage them. And um, for some reason, it was suggested that Paul Rothschild become their manager. Um, Rothschild was the star producer at Electra at the time. And of course, he'd been working with Love and The Doors and, you know, all these other, you know, bands. And um, yeah, they were persuaded that perhaps that was a better direction for them to go in. Um, Unfortunately, things kind of didn't work out as perhaps they expected. I mean, um, and Bob Seal once said to me, you know, it was like putting the fox in charge of the chicken house. You know, it was... um, But, you know, that was the direction they went. So, yeah, poor old Bud, he got his marching orders. Um, He basically then went off and uh, they set up another band, which included Wonder Watkins, who had been, you know, the short-lived singer with the brain train, uh, to form this band, The Joint Effort, which, of course, um, is another band that, you know, I wrote about for Ugly Things uh, a few years ago. So, uh, you know, it's great to have all these stories linked together, you know? Yeah, it's amazing how they all connect, and I love that. It's like a giant web. This is it. I mean, they're all entangled together. I mean, Clear Light, you know, um, the joint effort and the peanut butter conspiracy, you know, there are so many links uh, between those bands. It's amazing, really. And it's nice to unpick all those as well and then put it all back together. (laughs) Yeah. Now, tell me about the, the name change. So they were the Brain Train, and then they were Clear Light. How, how did that happen? Well, that's quite an interesting one, really. I mean, there are a couple of stories of, as to how they actually uh, landed that name. I mean, the, the prosaic one is that they just kind of took it from the uh, kind of Tibet, Tibetan Book of the Dead. But um, the legendary, more romantic one is kind of, Apparently, uh, Jim Morrison and Paul Rothschild were out tripping on acid one night, um, playing around in different parts of uh, Los Angeles. Um, just as the the sun was kind of going down, they were watching all the lights coming on over, uh, over the city. And uh, at one point, Jim jumps up and looks down at Paul and says, uh, race you to the clear light. Meaning, you know, one of these streetlights that had just come on, but because they, you know, they were uh, off their heads on uh, on acid, this kind of resonated with Paul, and uh, yeah, he'd kind of kept that in his head, and uh, yeah, eventually suggested it as a name for the band, and, and you know, those guys took it on, so yeah, they became Clear Light, which was kind of a, I mean, Brain Train is a great name, but you know, Clear Light really did, you know, resonate with the with the times, really. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a better name, definitely. So things really started happening from then on, and soon after signing to Elektra, they got to appear in a movie with James Coburn called The President's Analyst. There was a time she needed me to lean on There was a time, but now it's past and gone yeah, they were really lucky uh, with that because, I mean, I never really kind of got to the exact bottom of how this happened, but they, they must have had some links with, uh, you know, publicists in Hollywood. Certainly, you know, Paul must have had some clout with these guys. But uh, apparently they beat over 100 other groups to land the role in the film. I mean, and you got to, you know, they were an unknown band at the time. They hadn't even, you know, uh, issued any records or anything. They'd only done a bare minimum of recording. But, um, yeah, they landed the role and uh, apparently even beating the Grateful Dead to get the get the part. And they're quite, you know, they get quite a big part in the film as well. You know, quite a 
key uh, part of the film for a while because um, basically the premise of the film is James Coburn plays um, uh, an analyst, the, the, the president's analyst of the title of the film, obviously, um, and basically he's kind of privy to all the the inner workings of the president's uh, you know psyche the um, you know what makes him tick and of course being privy to all these kind of the innermost workings of the president's mind he becomes a bit of a target for kind of all these foreign powers and domestic kind of uh, agencies who want to know what you know what what, what the story is and uh, while he's in new york you know he's being followed by these various spies and stuff he manages to give them a, the slip by um, jumping into the back of this tour van that's parked outside the Café Wah. And he's hiding in there. And then, of course, then he looks around and there's all these kind of freaky guys and a, a freaky looking girl as well. And, and that's it. He becomes involved with Clear Light, who are, you know, the band on tour. You know, he's hiding out, even though, that you know, these people are still tracking him down. They still know where he is and everything. He's... <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's fascinating. He actually does play um, plays a gong on stage with uh, Clear Light in one sequence. Um, <laughs> and it's a really strange sequence at that because they're playing in this club where everyone's been dosed with this weird blue LSD. The whole club is full of these spies and they're all tripping out on this acid. It's uh, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, for, for the film, it's, it, because... Clearlight didn't really have a kind of really strong personality as a frontman at the time. Um, and this is one of the problems uh, that they kind of faced in the early days is Paul Rothschild didn't think they had a distinctive vocal style or, you know, some something distinctive, even though they had, you know, um, Bob was a good vocalist uh, and Doug was too. But um, for the film, for some reason, it may be the studios brought them in or, you know, for whatever reason, they brought in Barry Maguire to front the band uh, and he did a really good job uh, of the role I mean he had some experience as an actor before you know and he had a huge hit with uh, Eve of Destruction so he was a known face kind of thing so I suppose there was that kind of marketability of him but um, what great exposure that must have been you know to appear in this you know huge big budget film yeah, and James Coburn was a huge star at the time with, you know, the uh, Our Man Flint movies oh, yeah. and all kinds of westerns that he'd been in. So, yeah, it was a huge vehicle for them and quite an interesting uh, experience as well, I'm sure. The guys, which, I mean, they loved it because they were being paid to sit around in a, you know, uh, an artist's caravan kind of thing, where, you know, uh, eating uh, good food and drinking, you know, as much beer or whatever as they like. You know, they'd been... Obviously, before that, they'd been on the breadline pretty much when they were living at Manhattan Beach. So this was the height of luxury to these guys. You know, they just enjoyed it. And of course, they they also, uh, you know, they ended up with a kind of few kind of mumbled lines in the film as well. So (laughs) So that was sort of the last hurrah for that lineup of the band, because right after that, as they started even recording the album, um, there started being some lineup changes, and those were instigated by Rothschild, right? Yeah, this is right. I mean, they, they started uh, recording the album in April, just after the, the film had finished. Um, I mean, in the film, you do see them performing one track, um, She's Ready to Be Free, which was written by Robbie. It's about his breakup with Barbara. And um, Barry does a really good job of delivering that. But um, yeah, they started recording stuff and She's Ready to Be Free was one of the first tracks they recorded in April, along with a reworking of Black Roses, which was one of the songs they did as the brain train. Um, And a few other tracks as well. But yeah, uh, 
basically, yeah, it was this whole thing about not having a strong vocal style or, you know, vocal presence. So they started uh, looking around for, you know, someone else to come into the group. And the person they hit upon was uh, Clifty Young, who was, uh, at the time he was uh, in uh, college, he did a lot of college theatre. He had quite a kind of theatrical background. But he'd also been um, in, a, a, you know, various, various bands playing around uh, the Los Angeles area. And he, he'd earned quite a reputation um, for his kind of stage presence. He played with um, one band where he was actually billed as Crazy Cliff, you know. So uh, it gives you an idea of the sort of thing he was doing. But, uh, yeah, he'd previously played in a band with Michael Ney. And Michael Ney recommended that Cliff come into the group. And, um, yeah, Paul gave the OK and, and that's it. Cliff was in. But shortly after that, Robbie was out because, uh, yeah, as I said before, you know, his guitar playing wasn't the best. And he would probably be, have been, the, you know, one of the first to admit it. And, you know, very graciously, he kind of backed out of, uh, you know, being in the front line of the band and kind of took on this, you know, kind of backroom role sort of thing as a guru. Um, and then shortly after that, they began looking around for uh, another guitarist to come into the group. And they auditioned quite a few people, you know, on the scene. Um, I think the most notable one would have been Doug Hastings, who was, um, he'd just left uh, the Daily Flash and was looking around. For, you know, right. this was just before he, he teamed up with another um, kind of Paul Rothschild uh, project with uh, Rhinoceros. But, um, yeah, he did kind of gel. He, he liked the band, but he thought it was a bit too cluttered because they had the double drums. So uh, he kind of backed out of that. And in the end, they actually settled on um, hiring or bringing in um, a keyboard player in the shape of Ralph Shuckett, who was like a 17-year-old kid, you know. But, um, yeah, he brought a whole new kind of dimension uh, of sound to the band, really. And uh, the keyboards really kind of filled it out uh, a little bit more, than, you know, than just having another guitarist in it. So, yeah, it they were, you know, quite through quite a change, really, then. And, of course, then they recommenced um, recording the album in June of that year and started laying down all these new tracks and stuff. So, yeah, and, and kind of re-recording some of the uh, earlier stuff that had been laid down. So, yeah, they devolved into this whole new sound, really. Yeah, so it's on the album. It's, I mean, one of the reasons it's so diverse is that there's different singers on different tracks. Yeah, you know, like Bob Seal sings "Black Roses" and uh, some of the other ones, and Cliff does, a, you know, does most of the rest. Yeah, that's right. Also, there's kind of uh, a blend of styles. I mean, some of that kind of things like "Black Roses" and stuff that they recorded earlier on sound because they don't have the keyboards on them, and it's it's just a very diverse sound all the way through. Eclectic, one would say. Yes, eclectic. We'll be right back. So let's talk some more about the sessions. I mean, there was some friction in the studio between the band and Paul Rothschild. Yeah, certainly. Um, really, the real friction was between Bob and Paul Rothschild, really. Bob was quite a bit older than the rest of the guys. With Robbie out of the group, 
I mean, Doug was about 17, 18, Ralph was 17, you know, Cliff was around the same age. They were all kind of in there like uh, mid-teens or mid to late teens. And uh, But Bob was a bit older than these guys, so uh, a bit less malleable, shall we say. And, of course, he was quite um, a quite strong character. He was quite determined. He knew where he wanted to go. He knew what he wanted to do. But Paul was constantly kind of tinkering with the, you know, with the lineup and with the sound and and taking the band off in, into directions that perhaps Bob wasn't happy with. But Bob was very vocal about these things. Uh, that that really led to conflict with Paul because um, he would constantly be putting Bob down in the studio, belittling him, you know, undermining him, and you know, saying things like, you know, you can't play this, you can't play that, you don't know what you're doing. There are a million guitarists out there who could play this, you know, better than you. And the more kind of he criticised Bob, obviously, the more kind of nervous and uptight he became, and you know, the more mistakes he would make. And also, he'd started to suffer with a kind of arthritic complaint in his fingers, which was also obviously detrimental to his playing. And on top of that, you know, there'd be girls in the studio, uh, and, you know, Paul would be putting him down in front of all these girls. Neil Young, who was a good friend of Bob's, was also, you know, hang out. He was, you know, t- taking tips on production from Paul at the time, and he would often be in the uh, mixing booth. And, you know... It's, Poor old Bob, just it was quite crushing for him, really, I think, you know. But they managed to get it all done in the end, and, uh, yeah, you know, um, the album was all put to bed, and, uh, yeah, everything was hunky-dory then. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was finally released around September of that year, right? Yeah, it was toward the end of the year. And, um, I mean, really, it's really one of the great overlooked West Coast psychedelic albums, I think. So, I mean, tell me about, you know, what are some of your favourite tracks Oh gosh, where do you begin? You know, there are so many of them really on there. I mean, um, well, Bob's composition, um, They Who Have Nothing, it's a great little song. It's got um, a kind of ringing guitar on it, chiming guitar. It's got this weird double-tracked vocal on it, which makes it a bit kind of uh, difficult to pick out the lyrics. And Bob's singing on that one as well. But yeah. uh, it's, it's such a great, great song. You know, um, it's kind of birdsian, folk rocky kind of thing, but um, it's got their own sound on it, really. Um, yeah, I, I love Bob's songs on the album. I mean, I think for me... With All in Mind is probably my favorite track of all the Clear Light songs. Yeah, With All In Mind is another amazing track. Um, Yeah, I think Cliff sings on that one for a change. I think it's one of the later ones, but uh, uh, They Who Have Nothing has got a kind of an interesting arrangement. It's got all these little um, pops and things on it, and uh, also it's got a fantastic uh, fuzz bass from Doug on there as well, which, uh, yeah, always uh, always brings a smile to my face to hear that. Yeah. Now, Doug's tracks on the album are, are pretty great. 
uh, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, you, you say Bob's tracks are your favourites, Doug's are mine. And um, I mean, my favourite track on the album of all is, is Night Sounds Loud, which is the, the track that finishes the album. As I stand here in this wonderland Oh, it's just an amazing track. I mean, not only is it my favourite track on the album, it's one of my favourite tracks from the 60s, you know, completely. You know, um, It's in my top ten of everything, and I'm very close to the top of my top ten. But uh, it's kind of like a, uh, it's a lyrical interpretation of an acid trip, which so many of kind of Doug's uh, early tracks were, really. I mean, Sand is another one, which, is a, is, again, is an acid trip on the beach. But this is an acid trip at night. But... Um, yeah, again, ringing guitar from Bob, lovely pulsing keys, uh, and Cliff's vocal just kind of soars away and, and builds and builds until it reaches that crescendo and then trails off. I mean, it, it's it's a fantastic uh, ending to the album. It was released on a 45 here in the UK, only in the UK, um, and I got Doug to sign a copy of it for me, and that's one of my most precious artefacts, I must say. Nice, nice. Now, um, talking about Cliff, I mean, he had this amazing uh, theatrical presence um, vocally and then also on stage. Yeah, I mean, poor old Cliff gets a lot of kind of, um, uh, now and then, you know, gets a lot of kind of negative comparisons with Jim Morrison just because of the theatrical thing. But um, Cliff, you know, has a much, it was a much better vocalist than, uh, than Morrison, had a much wider range. And, uh, you know, he wasn't this, you know, I mean, uh, Morrison tends to just, uh, you know, he's a bit of a crooner, really. But uh, Cliff was much more than that. But, yeah, I mean, the theatrical stage presence, um, the big highlight of their live set was their cover of uh, Mr. Blue, the Tom Paxton number. Mr. Blue, Mr. Blue. Clearlight recorded it oh, and released it before um, Tom Paxton's own version came out, and really they made it their own. And a lot of the time they would end the set with this. You know, it's a, it's a very uh, darkly paranoid interpretation of the song that they put across. At the end of that song, um, their road manager, Lee Housekeeper, would uh, often dress up in an LAPD uniform and go on stage at the very, very end of the track uh, with a starting pistol and uh, you know, shoot Cliff in the head and Cliff would just collapse in a heap on the floor, you know. Uh, I mean, it's... It, 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 <laughs> It's just a shame that, that that kind of there's no film footage of those guys doing that stuff because it, it must have been a, an amazing sight to see. I mean, that track was hugely, hugely popular, and it's it, unfortunately it was it's quite a long track. Um, otherwise, I mean, really, Electra should have released that as a 45. It would have been a big hit. 
it was a big uh, success on FM radio yeah. back then, you know, where they could play longer tracks. For sure. I mean, it was. I understand it was very popular with the troops out in Vietnam. I suppose it kind of tied in with a lot of stuff that was uh, going on over there. I know uh, you're not a great fan of it yourself, Mike. I can remember <laughs> uh, the, the, the cover version that um, Mike Fornatale uh, put together uh Good morning, Mr. Stax, <laughs> or whatever, you know. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean... I think I just said it was my least favorite song on the album, but, uh, I mean, I can't deny it. It's an amazing performance, you know. It's not, it's not a song that I'd sit down and listen to regularly. Well, no, I mean, once you've heard it a few times, it's, it, you know, it has... Um, it still has a power and a uh, sense of drama to it. And, of course... Um, you know, paranoia hasn't gone away, has it? So, it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm liking it more all the time. <laughs> yeah, it becomes more and more relevant as as the years go on. Sadly, yes, it does. <laughs> so after the album came out, though, things gradually started to unravel. So, you know, what happened? Can you sort of talk, talk us through that? Yeah, I mean, basically all the problems between um, Bob and uh, Paul Rothschild kind of came to a head. And Paul was, you know tinkering away doing his little uh, kind of Svengali act behind the scenes you know machinating about you know how he could get um, Bob out of the band basically and um, behind Bob's back Paul had organized all these kind of jam sessions but they weren't really jam sessions they were auditions they were auditioning um, other guitarists behind Bob's back even though Bob was there and kind of jamming along with these guys uh, he didn't have a clue he was, yeah, he was participating in the auditions for his own replacement yeah, without knowing yeah. it. It was pretty cold. It was, it was. And um, unfortunately, you know, as I said, the rest of the band, still, you know, relatively young, easily influenced by Rothschild, you know, thought that he knew what he was doing. I mean, before they even started doing these auditions, I mean, Paul had been trying to uh, bring in, um, you know, James Taylor into the band. James Taylor didn't want anything to do with it, but it ended up with uh, people like Ken Pine from the Fugs and uh, Danny Korchmar, who also had been playing with the Fugs and had been with the, uh, you know, the King Bees and also with James Taylor. And um, basically, uh, Danny got the gig and Bob was uh, kind of given his marching orders. But fair play to Bob, you know. Um, I mean, the kind of the popular perception was that Bob was kicked out um, straight away at the... Uh, at the beginning of December, but he actually kind of um, stayed with the band and played live with them right through the next few months of the year. Um, it was a bit confusing. This was one of the things that was quite hard to work out what happened because um, they were still playing gigs through the beginning of 1968, but none of the band members uh, could ever remember playing any live gigs with Danny Korchmar. And um, so, yeah, it's a kind of a strange time. Yeah, I mean, as as I understood it from what Bob told me, um, they'd obviously selected Danny without him knowing it, and it was really just a matter of relocating him to the West Coast to plug him into the band. But in the meantime, Bob had no idea what was going on and continued playing. Yeah, yeah. That's... And ev eventually they had an, a, a meeting at Electra and told him, yeah, you're out. And uh, then they, you know, when's Danny going to be here? And they started talking about the arrangements for that. And there's Bob, like, sitting at the table in tears, you know, wondering what he's going to do next, seeing as he started the band as well. Yeah, I mean, kicked out of his own band. I mean, it, it destroyed him, really, and, he, you know, just undermined his confidence so, so much. I mean... Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, 
he, he left the band and uh, eventually relocated up in uh, Northern California, up in uh, Sausalito. But for a while, you know, he, he, he didn't even play the guitar anymore. He, he, he took up playing bass for a while. You know, he was with Gail Garnett's um, Gentle Rain for a while as a bass player. I think he was really a bass player and, and, you know, for the rest of his life, primarily, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, you know, he was that versatile guitarist that he could, you know, uh, swap between the instruments quite easily, you know, and... Um, right. I mean, let's look at what happened. You know, this was the idea to get this great guitar player, Danny Korchmar from New York City, to come out to L.A. and be a part of Clear Light. How did that work out? Well, not very well, really. Um, I mean, for Danny, I think it was just a bit of an excuse to uh, get away from kind of the New York winter and get a bit of Californian sunshine. Plus, uh, you know, he had friends out in uh, in L.A., you know, from New York that he wanted to go and hang out with, you know, Carol King being uh, the main one. Um, I mean, what one of the the benefits, the upsides of, of Danny's involvement with the group was where he recruited them to play some session work for the Monkees uh, for the the uh, soundtrack of the Head album. And Clearlight, you know, um, some of the members of Clearlight appear on the track uh, Porpoise Song, which is probably the uh, the most psychedelic thing the Monkees ever recorded. Yeah. Um, but that was all fr- thank- thanks to Danny Cooch, really, um, that they landed that. Right. But yeah, I mean, Danny was this kind of East Coast, you know, that East Coast attitude, you know, kind of a bit more cynical, a bit more hard. And of course, the, the Clear Light guys were wide eyed West Coast hippies, really. And of course, it was um, oil and water, you know, it didn't really mix. I mean, there was an attempt to record um, what would have been a second album uh, with Danny on guitar. But for this, um, Paul Rothschild delegated the production to um, Fraser Mohawk. And uh, yeah, so he was in the producer's chair. And they did lay down some tracks with, with Danny on guitar. And, and sadly, they're lost completely. Um, well, almost completely. Um, the tapes are MIA. Um, there were some, uh, some acetates that went AWOL. But I did manage to get um, a couple of tracks from uh, Ralph Shuckett. Ralph had uh, a cassette that he had baking in the attic of his house in uh, in Los Angeles for the better part of four decades that he managed to uh, drag out that, uh, you know, obviously deteriorated over time. But um, he managed to lift these two tracks off of there one of which was called Darkness of Day, which is um, kind of very much in the vein of Night Sounds Loud from the first album, but uh, with lyrics by Cliff. Cliff had written there, inspired by their first trip to New York. There was a particular incident in New York when they first went out there where they were playing a, a kind of rather staid um, club, like a cocktail club sort of thing, you know, the suited and booted kind of uh, clientele. bit more upmarket than the kind of places they would normally play and uh, basically the, the the people in the club were just sitting around drinking cocktails and chatting amongst themselves and ignoring the band until Ralph kind of uh, had a freak out moment and started haranguing the crowd you know we're up here playing our asses off and you can't even be bothered to listen and you know you're talking to and had a real freak out um, 
and Ralph had only been with the band a short time then you know he was 17 years old and the other guys are looking around thinking oh my god what's going on you know Ralph's lost it and of course they walked off stage uh, and uh, it was one of Steve Paul's clubs and Steve thought yeah you're fired you'll never play this town again and uh, off they went thinking oh this is our careers over and Cliff that night they were staying uh, you know at the Chelsea and uh, no sorry the Chelsea at the Albert they were staying at the Albert Hotel and uh, Cliff sat out on the kind of fire escape and kind of wrote these lyrics that uh, kind of came to him in the, the wake of this, uh, you know, oh, this is it's all over. And yeah, the, basically these are the lyrics that formed the, the basis of this song, um, Darkness of Day. But uh, yeah, I mean, that basically worked in their favour because they became instant celebrities in New York. Yeah, they became uh, uh, you know underground heroes overnight. They had a big, big following over there. All based on this, you know, one incident with Ralph uh, losing his rag with these, uh, you know, complacent um, club goers. <laughs> Great story. I mean, these two tracks that were on this kind of uh, beaten up old cassette. One of them was this uh, song written by Cliff, but the other one was uh, one of Danny Cucci's uh, numbers. It was um, kind of a little wistful ballad or love song thing called um, "What a Difference Love Makes." <laughs> Kind of, it's fascinating to hear these because, of course, it gives you an indication of the direction that they were following, you know, in the wake of Bob's departure. And um, maybe, a, a, you know, a little softer, a little more kind of um, mainstream, maybe even, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, pretty soon after that, Cliff decided he didn't want to uh, be a part of the band anymore. I mean, at the point that point, Rothschild was trying to get Cliff out of the band and replace him with someone else, and so he thought he'd uh, jump before he was pushed. And then pretty soon after that, the kind of band just folded completely. I think Doug said to me that uh, Danny Cooch had come into, so he was waiting for an inheritance or something, and as soon as that came through, he just wasn't interested in the band anymore. And of course, he went on to form, you know, be a part of the city with Carol King, uh, which is what he really wanted to do all along. You know, that was a kind of scene to be the whole kind of raison d'etre of him moving to the West Coast. So kind of things worked out well for him, but of course the rest of the guys got uh, kind of, you know, sidetracked. Right. So, yeah, they scattered to the wind at that point. So, you know, what did the different band members end up doing after Clear Light? Some of them went on to do some quite notable things. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, Dallas obviously, you know, went on to join um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and later Young as a drummer for those guys. And, uh, you know... He even uh, appears, uh, you know, peering out of a, a window on the back sleeve of the first CSN album. And, uh, you know, I always think that band should have been called Crosby, Stills, uh, Nash, Reeves and Young. You know, that would have been, uh, sorry, Crosby, Still, Nash, Reeves and Taylor uh, would have been more accurate. But, of course, you know, Greg Reeves and Dallas, uh, you know, they weren't the big draw that the other three were. Then there was, of course, um, Ralph and uh, Michael Nay went on to join with the Peanut Butter Conspiracy for uh, one album for the um, for Children of uh, All Ages album, which was the final um, Peanut Butter Conspiracy album. 
Uh, after that, Ralph ended up joining uh, Utopia with Todd Rundgren and, uh, you know, played on several albums with him. Michael went on to play, you know, with a lot of blues artists, uh, you know, quite big names on the blues circuit. Doug, of course, um, you know, had been doing um, sessions with The Doors. He played on Strange Days. He played on most of Waiting for the Sun and about 50% of uh, the Soft Parade album. And, uh, I mean, he had even been invited to join The Doors at one point, but actually turned the offer down because he wanted to stay with Clear Light because this was pre The Doors really breaking through to the other side, as it were. Um <laughs> yeah, I mean, an electoral were telling clear like, oh, the doors are going nowhere. We're going to be putting all our kind of uh, promotional weight behind you guys, you know, and all this sort of stuff. So Doug stuck with clear light. But then, of course, Light My Fire became the big smash hit of the Summer of Love. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. But, um, but yeah, he didn't like the direction they were taking with the soft parade. So he kind of cut out about halfway through that, ended up relocating to New York formed a band, a kind of jazz fusion band with the Brecker Brothers uh, called Dreams, issued a couple of albums with those guys, was in a way, well, he, he did a lot of session work playing with the Everly Brothers and stuff like that, you know, still writing a lot of songs for different bands, was in another group called Pierce Arrow in the mid-70s, uh, and then kind of reinvented himself as this kind of spandex-clad uh, rocker when he, he teamed up with Billy Squire. You know, that was the kind of last big thing he did. He kind of retired from the music industry and then he became like a, a captain of a charter boat, taking people out fishing because yeah, he'd re he relocated to Miami by this point, um, you know, in Florida and was doing all these kind of fishing trips. So, yeah, he was Captain Doug. Yeah, yeah, lovely guy. I, I, I really do miss him. He was, uh, you know, he became a really good friend. Um, you know, we'd often chat and uh, he was quite acerbic, you know, he, he had quite a lot of attitude. I mean, um, you know, he, he started off in uh, Colorado playing with kind of bands at school, uh, at his high school. But uh, the other guys in the bands didn't like to be with him because at the time when he was kind of like a teenager, he suffered from uh, quite severe halitosis. And they didn't like being in a band with him because they wouldn't use the microphone after he'd sung into it. Cause, so <laughs> poor old Doug. But I mean, he he actually um, after that he hitchhiked to uh, Aspen to become uh, to, for skiing, and he actually became the youngest ski instructor in Aspen at the time. He was like 17 years old, and it was while he was there he he would often you know apres ski, go to these uh, you know not like the various clubs that were around the place, and he'd sit in on bass with uh, you know various bands that were playing. And uh, this one particular night, a band called The Candy Store were playing. They'd come in from L.A. and he'd sat in with them on bass. And part of their kind of entourage was uh, Mama Cass, Cass Elliot from the Mamas and Papas. And she saw Doug playing, you know, bass and said, look, you know, you should go to L.A. Bass players are in demand out there and you do well. So, um, yeah, so he decided uh, to uh, hop back to L.A. with her. And actually spent um, a couple of, uh, you know, a few weeks living with Cass in our house, uh, but left before, you know, he kind of outstayed his welcome and ended up living on the streets in L.A. on the strip. I mean, for a while he was um, sleeping on the uh, kind of back porch of the Sea Witch uh, Club on, on the strip, you know, before he lucked out and um, found this apartment block that was being managed by Bud Mathis. And Bud kind of took him under his wing, bought him this bass guitar, and you know, 
Doug's book, uh, My Life with the Doors and Other Stories, is another great one to read. Fantastic. I mean, as I say, Doug's memory of the kind of clear light era was a bit patchy, but other things, you know, he remembered with crystal clarity and it's well worth seeking out. Yeah, it's a good one. And Cliff, of course, um, went on to a great uh, career as an actor on stage and on screen, you know, and, and of course um, also recorded more stuff as a solo artist because he landed the, the main role in uh, the TV show Sunshine, which he played, you know, a, a musician in. And, of course, there were spin-off albums from that. And, you know, he's just been on in, in so many, you know, different things. It's always uh, great, you know, to turn on an episode of, uh, you know, Murder, She Wrote or whatever, and there's Cliff kind of pops up, um yeah, it's, it's always a delight to see him. And he's, he's done some amazing roles as well in films uh, like Rude Awakenings, which he worked on with um, Cheech Marin, and uh, Paul Rothschild was the music director on that film. But Cliff's another lovely guy, you know. Um, I met Cliff in London when he came over a few years ago. He took me out for this lovely slap-up meal, you know, and we we had a great t- uh, you know few hours chatting, chatting about his clear light days. And, uh, yeah, such a lovely guy. All of them, you know, it's, it, it was a real privilege for me to uh, connect with all these guys and, and get their stories because, um, as I say, you know, it all seemed so far away, like it was being beamed in from a, another planet, you know, when I first heard their stuff and to actually become kind of pals with these guys. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, all of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I say, it was a privilege to do that. And, um, I, and I'm glad I did because so many of them now, I mean, there's only two guys still around from the band. Uh, you know, the rest have all kind of passed on within the last uh, few years. So, I was, you know, just so grateful to be able to get their stories firsthand while they were still around to tell them. Yeah, it's great that you were able to do that. Yes, yeah, so now the only people still around from the band are Cliff and Michael, and everyone else has passed. Yeah, yeah. And and Lee, of course, the uh, their road manager, who was, uh, you know, an integral part. He's another great character. I mean, uh, so many stories. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, fanta- another fantastic guy and a really, you know, really nice person. So, uh, yeah, right. They sort of start off as these mystical, uh, you know, legendary shadowy figures, you know, that never made it. And then you actually get to meet them. Uh, it's always nice when it turns out that they're good people. Yeah, they're interesting yeah. people and you connect with them. How many days have passed since yesterday? How many places have you found to hide away? How I mean, we're lucky to be in the position that we are where we can, um, you know, connect with these people and tell their stories and preserve their stories for the future because this is why you know it was great having the website but I realized that kind of you know that kind of stuff is pretty ephemeral and I really wanted to um, because in the end I I, you know I I closed the website down there were technical issues that meant I couldn't kind of um, improve upon it or update it so I just decided to let it go but condense all that information into you know a print into a text document and you know i just think magazines and stuff they're uh, you know they're going to last a, a lot longer than maybe you know an electronic website that you know you see them come and go all the time so i just wanted to make it permanent and preserve that story for future generations and that's the great thing as well because well 
Go on, Mike. Well, I was just going to chime in there, actually. I mean, that's something I always say, that digital is ephemeral and print is forever. And that's why I think that words in print carry more weight. They always feel to me to be part of a more permanent record in a way that that something on the internet is impermanent. I mean, it may last forever, but probably not. No, well, you know, this is it. When the, when the electricity runs out, you know, we'll still be able to play, uh, you know, records on wind-up ga- gramophones, but, uh, you know, the internet and, every, and read books and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, all this electronic stuff's just going to go, you know, disappear one day. So, um, and of course, it's just such a glut of stuff on on the internet and to, trying to find <laughs> stuff is, is just a nightmare. So uh, it's just nice to have everything in one place. And of course, um you know, ugly things is in uh, libraries uh, and collections all across the world now, and um, you know it'll be preserved for uh, as long as there are people to read it, I suppose. And of course, considering you know it's, it's 50 years ago plus that these records came out, you know there are still uh, new generations of listeners coming up rediscovering all this music who want to know the stories of these bands, and and it's important to preserve them for the future because um, otherwise it, it's just lost to history, you know, and um, I say these bands just get relegated kind of footnotes and it's just nice to give them a bit of a kind of put the spotlight on them and, uh, you know, show the, you know, the warts and all. It's a labour of love as well, you know. Um, It's just, it's something I enjoy to do just to preserve the stories for the guys in the band as much as for, uh, you know, the people who are reading the stories themselves. It's, yeah. Yeah, I've encountered that a lot with bands because many times they feel like they failed you know, because they didn't have any commercial success or any commercial success they did have was short-lived. So they feel like they've been forgotten and somehow what they did means nothing. And when someone tracks them down and takes an interest in their story and tells their story for the ages, you know, that's an immense validation for them. To know that what they made, you know, back then has lasting value long beyond the times in which it was created. And that people still appreciate what they did back then and are still interested in those, you know, their, their stories and uh, their exploits. And, uh, yeah, no, uh, we're lucky that we're in the right uh, place and time to kind of uh, do this while these people are still around because soon that generation will have all passed and, uh, you know, it'll all just be, uh, you know, secondhand stories and, uh, you know, hearsay. And it's just nice to get the real stories down while they're still here. Yeah, absolutely. Before people start making up stories. This is it, yeah. Well, thanks, Gray. I think we uh, covered a lot of ground there. It's a fascinating band. When you think about it, it really all happened in the space of, you know, less than two years. Yeah. An incredibly uh, intense period of time for those guys. And that's something I found is that when you actually nail down when it began and when it ends, you know, they're like, wow. It felt like that was about 10 years, but it turns out it was 17 months. You know, that's because they put so much, so much happened into that in that short period of time. Um, you know, all the music they created, all the things that happened to them. And then talking about it for years and years afterwards, it seemed like it was a much longer experience than it actually was. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, um, Cliff, uh, when he read, you know, the the piece I put together on the band, he said he suddenly realized how much, um, you know, his time with Clear Light was, was the foundation of his later career, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, he found it quite moving to, to read that story that, you know, and to put it all into perspective for him, which, uh, you know, was 
quite gratifying really for me but you know quite humbling as well because you know it's, it's like kind of holding a mirror up and, and you know and, and seeing things or you know allowing them to see things in a different way like you say like validation really for a lot of these guys but of course you know uh, i don't know if cliff needs much validation he's had uh you know a, a starry career but yeah no, it was nice to get that feedback yeah. from him and um, i just wish the other guys were around ralph and doug and uh, and bob uh, you know uh, and robbie even you know unfortunately robbie died uh, in 2000 and uh, you know before i was able to track him down but those guys you know it would have been so gratifying for those guys to see this all come together finally and um, but you know but they're immortalized in print now you know and uh, not just the music but you know their story as well so I feel I've, you know, I, I, I feel my mission is accomplished. <laughs> well, great job. I mean, a fantastic piece, and and readers are really uh, raving about this. So people really love the story and are fascinated by the story, and uh, more people that are discovering their music thanks to reading this. Uh, and thank you for running the story in Ugly Things. You know, it's, it is a, a, a fantastic platform for people to kind of share these stories with an audience that's really interested in, in reading about them. And, uh, you know, we're all, you know, grateful. I mean, Ugly Things is, uh, yeah, top mag for me, you know. Uh, no other magazine comes close. No other music magazine comes close. Thanks. And, well, you know, I'm able to do this because of people like you who put years and years into writing these stories. I, I could talk about them all night, man. This is it. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's why we had you write the story right i mean you gotta yeah. be you gotta have this obsession with a band to be able to tell this story properly yeah the ugly things podcast was produced by james archer and narrated by mike stacks that's me you can learn more about clear light in issue number 58 of ugly things magazine which is available at UglyThings.com. That's Ugly-Things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please support us on Patreon, where all contributions are deeply appreciated. Patreon members can now hear the full, unedited interviews with Chris Britton and Pete Staples of The Trogs. That's over two hours of additional content available to VIP and All Access members. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Rob Brannigan, Chip Lyon, and my old friend and ex-Telltale Hearts bandmate, Ray Brandis. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 